Franklin, thank you so much for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it and we're happy to have you. And I've known you for, it's, it's been like a year now since we've known each other, but we don't get to see each other much because it's all been through COVID after we met at Turning Point SAS. And I'm just really appreciative that you'd come on. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your story to start off, I'm sure everybody would love to get to know you first. Well, Morgan, thank you for having me here. It is a great opportunity to talk about socialism and my experience to all your audience. And yes, I'm Franklin Camargo. I'm a 23 years old political activist who had to escape Venezuela two years ago after being expelled from my medical school while, while I was cursing my third year. And I was also accused of being a terrorist for professors, uh, universe, uh, authorities from my university, and also some other political activists who support the government. Okay, so you've only been here for two years. Has it, it been hard to adjust or it, has it been kind of natural for you being in Utah now? So the hardest thing has been the, the language. When I came here, I wasn't able to talk in English. I was using Google Translate all the time. But besides that, in some, of course, cultural difference, I have been very happy to be here all the time is there is a huge difference in so many things that I appreciate. I'm a privilege actually to be here. When people say that, that white people are privileged, I just say, well, people who live here in general, we are all privileged because we're in a beautiful nation with individual rights, a limited government that we have to work to keep that like that and actually to reduce the size of the government right now in so many things. But in general, I would say that uh, maybe America is a country that is perfect for me, for a person like me. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I forgot to warn you as well that my my camera is like behind over there, but you're right here. And I it's so much easier to just like kind of look at you on the screen. So if it looks like I'm not looking at you, I, I apologize for that. But no I'm looking at my screen so that I can have better a better conversation with you. Um, I your story is like amazing. And so I, I don't really want to pick a place where to start. Do you have a preference on where we could get started on just how this all happened for you at such a young age to come over to America? Is there a place you want to begin? Yes. I mean, in first place, I started to, to introduce myself in all the political and economic ideas because I could tell how my country was getting worse and worse. My dad, he's an economist, so he was always telling me the reason why centralizing the economy was bad, nationalizing businesses and natural resources was a horrible and immoral idea. In so many things, I actually also had the opportunity to come to the U.S. for vacations when I was a kid, and that was the biggest influence for me to try to fight and change my nation and change my country because I could see in first hand the difference between a free society where individu individuals are independent and a North society that was the society where I grew up and I raised, where the government controls everything and there is not a place for an individual, you know? So I also wanted to be a physician since I was a kid and there were different reasons, right? First, I like the idea of knowing the human being, how a system works, how sickness and disease act in our bodies. That was very interesting for me when I was a kid. And also, of course, physicians. And 
around the world are people who are paid very well. So that was my reasons. And I could tell that Venezuela was going bad also morally talking because when, when people ask me, why do I wanna be a physician? I was always including this aspect, the economic aspect. And they were saying, no, but don't say that because physicians should not care about money. And that was one of the first things I didn't like about how things were going on socially, morally, and economically talking in my country. So as I had the opportunity to come to the US and see how free market works, respecting private property and letting individuals to pursue their own happiness were really good ideas that actually work and make countries great, make countries prosperous. I wanted Venezuela to become a country as successful as US. I started my political activism when I was 18 years old. I did everything that you can imagine, a political outreach. I gave a speech and talks in so many universities. Actually, I had a speech called Defending Capitalism. I uh, participate, of course, in a peaceful protest in the street where I was, of course, attacked by the National Guard and I, as any other Venezuelan who had go to a protest was a victim of the use of force from the government. And three years after that, when I was 21 years old, to be more specifically, in January 25th, I was expelled from my university because I directly refused the political indoctrination that the professors and authorities were promoting and supporting. After that, my case was really known in social media. It was posted by political activists in Venezuela. So the reason that the university used uh, to expel me was that I was a terrorist, that I wanted to attack professors, that I wanted to fire classrooms, that I wanted to attack students. And so many lies that I was forced to leave my country. Um, when the government, is so big as is in Venezuela and control all the institution. And the same government who actually controls the education because the, the education in Venezuela is completely socialized right now, it's under the control of the regime. When that people is telling you that you are a terrorist and are accusing you of so many horrible things, the only option you have to save your life and to keep your freedom is to live. And that's what I had to do. If you kind of make an idea, I was in my last day of my third year of medical school and four weeks after I was in Miami. So it was a very shocking action that I had to take, but actually I'm lucky that I did it and now I can be here free and talking to you. No, I'm, I'm definitely thankful that you're here now and that you got out safely considering what they did to you. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Can we start with, before you got to the university, can you explain, was there any indoctrination in the earlier grades and earlier school levels? Because uh, in Cuba, I've, I've talked to people who are from, who are maybe like teenagers in the 90s or early 2000s. And for that sense, you know, the regime has been in power for so long, they were able to really seep into the education system. So they really had a lot of indoctrination in the classroom. Did you guys have that considering Chavez only came to power a couple decades ago? What was that like? So that's very common in Venezuela as well. I think any socialist regime need to indoctrinate 
the next generations. That's the only way you can control them, right? Even when the country is destroyed, they are going to obey because they have been taught that they have to do that. So to make you an idea, Chavez uh, applied uh, something constitutionally, uh, of course, because they changed the constitution that was the decree 1011, who allowed the government to regulate uh, with supervisors what professors were teaching. So with these supervisors, the government of Venezuela uh, has been regulating what professors teach and they can basically fire any professors if they don't like what they are teaching. So in my personal case, I studied in a private high school. So it was not under the complete control of the government. Nevertheless, you can see still the, the, you know, the threat of the government. Private schools are scared to teach what they want or scared to not follow the rules that the government are forcing them to take. Uh, there are so many uh, stories that you can hear from other people that have different stories in public schools. I have cousins that have been in uh, public schools and it's a completely different story where the government actually tries to indoctrinate kids and try to basically not teach objective uh, theories in general, but what the government actually just want them to know. Interesting. Now, um, I'm a little thrown off. I'm surprised that there was private schools in the country. Did the left try and get rid of all of them and there were just a few that were left standing? Because in America, even today, we're seeing more and more headlines i've noticed this over the last couple of months as more people try and get out of government schools the left is getting more vocal about eliminating school choice eliminating any aspect of a school other than public government school in our country so did you guys have that kind of initiative there too yes of course you know there are so private schools that are not that private and i think they're not that private because they are under some control and regulations by the government it, there, I mean, it has been always a threat. You know, the government is always trying to uh, nationalize some uh, private schools. They have nationalized some private schools and is the same with some private universities. But there are, I mean, the regime has been in power by two decades, right? And you sometimes, even when Venezuela was a social democracy, 10 years previous Chavez, uh, it is not easy to change everything just even in two decades. So you could see even some private schools, even some private universities that of course are not offering uh, a really good education because it is impossible because of all the conditions. But the government has been always trying to nationalize those schools, I mean, trying to regulate them, nationalize them, etc. And just for giving you an example, if you want to study medicine in Venezuela, you cannot go to a private school. They have the monopoly of some careers. So even when you can see some private university is, there is not free education. I mean, I mean like freedom education at all. That's interesting too. So if you want to be a specific profession, you have to go to a government school and get government training. I don't, we don't have that in here, I'll have to look into that general concept. Uh, based on your experience, I know you were younger in general and you were young when you left, but can you talk about the privatization of the economy? You touched on it with the education system and with certain professions. 
can you explain, because there's a lot of people out there, especially that lean left or that have heard the lies of the left, and they'll tell me and they'll tell you that Venezuela is a private economy, they are capitalist. Can you explain what that means? Because I try and let them know that once the regime is in power, they basically put people at the heads of companies. So then they can technically say they're private, but in reality, they're just run by the buddies of the regime. So it's in name only. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about that from your actual experience. Yes, of course, Morgan. So this is a problem that we have here in America. Most of socialists who are actually very young people don't know what really socialism is. You know, I'm, I'm not talking just about the results. I'm talking about the theory that they say that is beautiful and amazing. I'm talking that they don't know what even the, the theory is. And I'm saying this because actually a recent foundation did a poll and they determined that 60% of those millennials socialists, uh, just 60% are capable to define socialism as government's ownership of the means of production. So we're talking that the vast majority yeah, of those who identify themselves as socialists don't even know what socialism is. So mm -hmm. if you read the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx said that actually socialism is just a transition, a transition for communism, right? And he determined that by 10 points. If we see what the Chavismo has made for the last two decades, we could see that they have achieved at least seven of those 10 points in the Communist Manifesto. They have a central bank, they have nationalized private banks, they have a, a huge public education that is under the control of the regime, same with healthcare. They have a public nationalized uh, transportation and so many other points that actually Marx talked about. So when we're trying to reject and when we want to debate those socialists, there are two important things. We have to let them know how socialism doesn't work and actually those examples like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, those examples that we have in the last centuries actually, and why they are socialist. Because yes, some of them are not going to reject the idea that 95% of Venezuelans are poor, but they are going to say that that's not socialism. We have to explain them why uh, actually Venezuela is socialist. And if we see actually the, the free economic index, Venezuela is uh, the second least eco free economy in the world. Just Hong Kong has a least free economy. So they are not right to have private property. If you have like a business is under the control of the regime. They are going to regulate your prices. They are going to regulate what you produce, how you produce it, when you produce it. They are going to regulate the amount of what you produce. They are going to regulate how much you buy, at what price, in what places. So there is not a free economic at all. Also, if we talk about natural resources, they are all nationalized, uh, public service. I mean, there, there is not private electricity there is not private uh, internet i mean is all is everything under the control of the regime and what is that is socialism and secondly it's very important to talk also about the morality because i think that most of people pursue this socialist dogma because of the the morality you know they think that's a moral idea and even some of them who don't support socialism but they have some kind of collectivist philosophy. They think that they don't have the right to pursue their own dreams, their own happiness, their own goals. Even if they don't support socialism, in some way, finally, they are going to get, give up their individuality. So they are going to let the government control their lives. 
so I think that if we want to be free in long term here in America, if we want to keep capitalism alive, if we want to keep the principle that founded America alive, we need to talk about the morality. We need to say, you know what, me as an individual, have, I mean, I have the right to pursue my own dreams. I have the right to work and to care about my family. Uh, the government doesn't have the right to take what I produce. And that kind of things are very important right now. Yeah, well, and the idea that it would be easier for us to hand over control of hard uh, topics and issues to the government is just so short-sighted as well. Uh, people our age especially cannot imagine the repercussions of giving a higher power control over things that you need to survive in life. And, and that's really a, a strong pull for them. And I think your guys' stories really help that. Uh, speaking of young people, I don't know if you saw the number, you said the, the reason poll, there's a number from the 2020 Victims of Communism poll. And it says that only five to 6% of young Americans trust the government. <laughs> And I thought that was, but it was fantastic because with that poll came that number, but also came the number of 9% of, or the number went from 40% to 49% from 2019 to 2020 of Gen Zers who want socialism. And overall, a majority of young people still want socialism. So the numbers are still in favor of socialism, but then only five to 6% trust the government. And these are really dark times right now, but I can't help but see those numbers and kind of like smile at the optim, the optimistic side of it, looking forward yeah. to it. I think that if we reach them with the right messaging, we, we really could win them over to our side just to even embrace classical liberalism and capitalism. You know, if they're going to be soft Dems, fine. I'm, I'd rather do that and we could debate it out. I'm fine with that. Uh, but speaking of young people, again, you mentioned how you had to go to a certain college to become a doctor. What was it like being a young person at, for you and your friends when you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, with your career? Were there a lot of options or was it very limited? There are not a lot of options and there are not a lot of optimism and expectations. Of course, when you don't have a lot of opportunities, you just try to, I mean, be hopeful and have some kind of hope that makes you feel alive and happy. That's what individuals do. But just, I mean, imagine that a physician right now could earn maybe if, the, if he's a recently graduated physician seats or $10 monthly. And let me tell you a story. I have a, I had a professor who is a physician and she's right now getting her pediatric degree. She was one of the only ones who supported me when I was expelled from my college. And she sent me a message a month ago because she had COVID and she needed to take some medical exams and she didn't have $60 for a, to pay a medical exam. Even when she's a professor in, in a university, she's a physician and she's getting a pediatric degree and she doesn't have $60 for paying a just a medical exam. So I sent her the money and she was so grateful and so you can imagine how is the situation when actually we we let the government control everything in venezuela we have yes we have a public health care we have free health care but right now they don't have the resources for a simply i mean medical exam right now so what we have to explain to young people here is that if they don't trust the government, as you were saying, you don't want the government to control everything. You don't want to let the government tell you what to do and how to do it. Actually, it's the opposite. And I'm, I feel hope for that poll that you mentioned. We just have to explain them like, look, 
if you don't trust the government, you should not let the government control your life. And But what politicians do is that they want to make you believe that without them, you cannot live. Without a public health care, you cannot have you cannot have health care. Without public and free education, you cannot be educated. Without a government giving you food, you cannot eat. And actually, Ayn Rand gave an amazing example. She said, if shoes become an individual right, in a couple of years, someone like me will come and say, shoes are not an individual right. And people are going to say, wow, and how do you, how, I mean, how are poor people going to walk without shoes? The government makes us believe that without their health, help, we cannot survive. But actually it's the opposite. We survive because of us. Uh, government is not a productive organization. The main reason of the function of the government, and it is written in the constitution, is to protect our individual rights. That's it. After that, just with the right to life and private property and pursuit of happiness, we are the masters of our life and we need to produce the things that we need to survive. But we don't need the politicians and the government to tell you what to do and, and to survive, etc. Yeah, it's so interesting too, because I've talked to young people in America about, you know, government provided healthcare. And somebody that I care about a lot in life, I'm very close with them. They're a Bernie bro and I love them still. Uh, but he was explaining to me, listen, I'd rather pay a little more in taxes and make sure everybody has healthcare. Uh, same for me and my family, than have to go through what we're going through in America. And I know our healthcare system really is uh, damaged and needs to be reformed. But to have government take over control is just so damaging for us moving forward. Um, can you explain how in a place where you have free healthcare provided by the government, that professor, that physician that you mentioned still has to pay $60 for the exam? And she said she doesn't have the money for it. Yes, socialism starts to crumble when there are not more resources. Uh, when people say that they want free stuff, they actually don't mean that they want free stuff because they are not going to, to use slaves for the things that they need. Physicians are paid, the people who work in built hospitals are paid as well. I mean, everything needs to be created and produced. That's how life works, fortunately, actually. Uh, so what they mean is that they want someone else to pay that. The problem is that when you have a government so big that is taking resources for those who produce to give them to those who don't produce, uh, the system collapse. Sooner or later, it's going to collapse because there, there will be two, two ways. Or the people who produce are going to stop producing or the people who produce are going to leave the country. And that's what happened in Venezuela. So when there are not more resources to use for all the welfare state that they build, the system collapse. And right now in Venezuela, I mean, it is hard to find a mask. It is hard to, to find an ibuprofen. It is hard to survive for very basic disease because the government controls everything. The government destroyed the production. The government collapsed and doesn't have money. And now they don't have a way to pay for all the things that they were offering for years. So, I think. In Venezuela, in any kind of socialist nation, they did not increase our life standard, I mean, our life capacity, our resources, our wealth. What they increased, well, what they increased was their power. And that's what really matters. They did not increase 
our capacities, our wealth, they increase their power. And when it's too late, you figure out that you cannot remove them. Yeah. Okay. So that makes more sense, uh, especially for the listeners, because that's such a misconception in America today is if we just let the government take care of it, we just pay a little bit more in taxes and everything will be smooth sailing. Uh, but there's so much more to the story there. Uh, let's get back to your story about um, you went to college to become a physician. How was that? Let's just start there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the education in Venezuela right now is a mess. Professors are not paid or those who are paid because how lucky are paid very bad. The only reason why they teach is first because they love teaching or second because they want to get some experience and a good resume. That's are the only reasons. So when you are in a place, uh, you are going to receive some kind of education and that college or university doesn't even have the money to pay the professors. You can imagine how things are going on. But the thing is that when socialist governments are offering you public education and they are promoting these ideas, it's because they want to have the opportunity to teach the next generations, which means more power, more indoctrination, and destroy the individual and just build a number of, of individuals who are going to follow and obey without any kind of objective uh, knowledge. So the, the education was a mess. The classroom, all the infrastructure was a mess as well. The education was destroyed in Venezuela. Uh, decades ago, it was a really good education. We could see people from South America going to Venezuela to receive good education. But right now, uh, Professionals are not going to be really prepared to, to be, you know, uh, a, a really great physician or a really great scientist because the government controls everything. We have to understand that the, when the government is in, 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 you know, take the responsibility to educate, they are not going to have economically or education goals. They are going to have politically political goals. And when they have political goals, they just are interested about, uh, you know, getting more votes and more support, but not about the things that are important in education. Mm -hmm. um, so you had your speech, right? The benefits of capitalism. Did you start giving that when you were still in college as a student? Uh, yes, I never did it in my college because actually my university was one of the most a radical lefty under the control of the regime. And actually it wasn't a good idea, of course, because I was going there daily. So if I gave a speech there, it was going to be more dangerous for me. Uh, however, yes, I started in 2019, uh, like seven months before being expelled to travel to some states uh, to offer this talk and speech to some other universities, yeah. uh, which was uh, an amazing experience. Was it? an underground meeting or how did you get away with this in such a dangerous environment? So I was in a political party, right? Called Vente Venezuela, who is the only non-socialist political party in my country. And well, even when it's not a legally, legally talking a political party because the government doesn't allow it to be in elections for obvious reasons. Really? Yes. So, um, you know, so uh, throughout this organization who really knows how to do everything and be like safely, I could go throughout all of this and, and give all the talks 
that are not very public, I must say, is not that you are making like a campaign for two weeks saying that I'm going to be there at this time and give my speech, but is, uh, yeah, like underground with uh, members of the political party who invite friends and people that they know so you can have a group and talk about that in a, I won't say safely way, like a safe way, but not that dangerous as you would do it like in an extremely public way. So you weren't like making social media graphics, like saying we're gonna be- <laughs> Yeah, no, no, not time. like a flyer, exactly. Not, not like a flyer with place and time and everything. That's how you did it. It makes sense that that's what you would be having to do. Uh, yes. So you, you literally like got all the way through school, right? And then right at the end, you stood up to the professor. Can we hear that story? Cause I- I love it. Yes, it was in my last year of uh, my third year of medical school in Venezuela. Uh, medical school is about six and seven years. Actually, the, seven, the year number seventh, that is the last one. You need to work basically for free by the government is the way to be grateful and say thank you for the, for the government which paid you for all the education, right? So in this last day of my third year, uh, it was a very controversial day. It was three days after Guaido was elected like the constitutional president, even when, of course, all the army doesn't obey him and doesn't recognize him as the president. So it was a very controversial day. They used this last day as a special day just to talk about politics. So my, a, a professor called uh, Jose Angel Mesa, and the director of the medical school called... Uh, Lucio Diaz Ortiz, they both were talking about how grateful we should be because of free education. We should be grateful to Chavez. We should say thank you to Chavez because if we are going to be a physicians are all because of them. And you know, that kind of things, they were always saying like, in other countries, you could not be a physician. So you have to be grateful. You, you have to be glad for all these things that we are offering you. So in a very respectful way, you know, I like to debate, I like to talk. I, well, I just stand up and started to say like, I completely disagree. Actually, the, the reason that, the main reason that we need free education tells you that the society and the country is going very bad. I mean, I cannot pay for my private education. Actually, even if I could, I, I mean, I wasn't able to go because there is not private education about medicine in Venezuela. So the reason that we needed that, it talks very bad about the government. And I was just telling him, see, I mean, you are not paid for being a professor. It's just see all these classrooms are a mess. So he got really mad. I was very respectful, or that's what I think, I guess. Um, but he got really mad. He basically took me and sent me to the uh, director's office and they were talking to me. I mean, they were yelling at me actually very mad. And I always remember one of the phrases that the director told me. He said, this is a Chavista and revolutionary university. If you don't like it, go to Harvard. He said that and they spelled me. They just did that. They said, you are spelled, don't come back again. Actually, I came back a couple hours after and I just went to the director's office and I told him like, okay, I'm spelled, but just give me like a, you know, like something that I can read and I can see the reason why you are expelling me. And he said, I'm not going to give you everything. And if you don't leave right now, I'm going to call the security, you know, the security 
uh, the kind of security that the university has that of course he means people who maybe were going to take me to jail or something like that so after that i went home i was really scared but things actually uh, became worse after that, uh, days after when my case was really known. It actually was stuck in the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. So it was a, a very known case for a while. And then is where I actually started to my life being in danger because they started to argue that the reason why it was expelled is because I wanted to fire my classrooms. I wanted to attack students. I wanted to attack professors, authorities. I was disrespectful. And all these things that uh, put my life in, in dangers. Yeah. Now, is and this is all because you just spoke out against what they were saying about the Chavez regime? Yes. I had problems in the past with the same authorities in my first year of medical school because of all my political activism, but I was very uh, careful when I was there in that place because I knew that there my life was more in danger. Uh, however, uh, I mean, I just did that and I was I was expelled from my college. And what happened after that was, I mean, even worse. I think when you first told me the story, did you say something about how they would be like, oh, the people that dare to leave and go to America just end up cleaning toilets and, and yes, yeah, I think so. That, in all the not. yeah, yeah, in all the discussion in the debate where he was saying like, yes, in other countries you could not go to college, and actually he was also saying because uh, around five million of Venezuelans, our population is about three million, and about five millions uh, has escaped Venezuela. They had gone to some countries in South America, or Europe, or United States of America here. And he was saying, like, yes, I mean, those Venezuelans are just going to USA to, you know, clean houses or bathrooms, and they don't take the opportunity to be physicians here. They are just so hypocrites, or they hate Venezuela, and that kind of stuff. And actually, that's a, a very sensitive topic for me, because uh, at that moment, I had, of course, some family that was... Uh, in South America or was in Europe, or even a very sensitive case for me because even when my dad is an economist, he was not doing well anymore. And I could know that my dad could go and could do so much better cleaning bathrooms here in America than as an economist and a businessman in Venezuela. So it, it was a, a very sensitive argument for me that I, I got really mad, but it was always respectful. But you can see just how hypocrite socialists are because they are telling you that, you know, they are for the people, for the hard worker. But when it's about someone that they disagree or they don't like, they're always going to discriminate you. That's so, sh they are shaming the working class. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And the biggest lesson that I got out of it is like, that says a lot that somebody's willing to leave your socialist country to go clean toilets in a country like America just for the ability to be free, the ability to grow and have more opportunity and make more money and, and provide for their families. Because yeah. I'm really into just the trends of countries in the West where 
one generation makes a sacrifice to work, maybe a working class job, and then the next generation is lower middle class, the next one is upper middle class. And you see that trend, and that's really what we're seeing right now, where the Italian immigrants and the European immigrants that came over in the early 1900s, those generations now, while they were suffering so much, they did so much for their families today. And, and there's so many ungrateful Americans that can't see that. and and probably have no respect for what their ancestors went through. And I wish that we had greater appreciation for it. Uh, but really for you, did you have allies on your side as you were being called a terrorist? Uh, how did that go down? Like, was your family like, shoot, we got to get you out? Or were they begging you to stay? What went down? So it was the scariest moment of my life. And I have no idea if I'm going to have uh, a scarier one. I hope I won't. But yes, I was accused of being a terrorist and actually uh, throughout my political party and some people that I knew, uh, I could hear that actually like uh, arrest action was going to me. I mean, they were planning to do that to me. So I was very scared. I didn't know what to do because there was a huge risk of being arrested in the airport. And I mean, there were moments where I was receiving more than uh, 45 calls uh, every day uh, on my phone. I was getting a lot of followers on social media, but also message, hate message sometimes. So it was a very scary, a scary moment. It was very scary for my mom as well. As a woman, of course, they are more sensitive about these things. She was very scared. I remember she asked me if I if I regretted about what I did. Like, do you regret for what you did? And I was like, mom, I mean, I don't because that's how I am, you know? I'm not just going to be quiet and, and listen and everything. And I'm so glad that I did it for so many reasons. First, because I did the right thing. And secondly, I mean, now I'm here, I never planned to, to immigrate or to leave my country. But now that I'm here, all the sacrifices that I have done, and, but all the goals that I have, in, and I know I'm going to achieve, but especially I know that, as you were saying, it, it's a sacrifice that you sometimes uh, must do. And I know my future generations are going to be so glad that I came here and I have been working so hard. And even when it was not easy at the beginning without knowing English with so many hard things, I mean, I, was, I didn't know anyone here. So many sacrifices, but I did the right thing. And I know my future generations are going to appreciate it. Right. Well, I'm thinking of like your great, great grandkids are going to be like, did you know we had a family member that did X, Y, Z? And it's going to be awesome. Uh, you kind of had a quick turnaround, right? So like the whole terrorist thing happened. You left the school. Didn't it happen like a month or what was the turnaround to get you out of the country? Yes. So it was a month. And... It, that's what I said. I mean, it was a very shocking situation. I remember in my second day, I was in a meeting with some people that knew about my case. And some people from the Libertarian Party in Miami, actually, and they wanted to, to meet me. Oh. And they wanted, they wanted to meet me. And I just went there. Some of them spoke Spanish because, of course, it's Miami, so many Cubans. There were some conservatives as well. And I went there. And I remember that someone was talking in English, I couldn't understand anything. I was just thinking, I, I, I was not even listening for a moment. And I was thinking like, 
what am I doing here? I mean, four weeks ago, I was finishing my third year of medical school. And right now I'm in a place where I don't know anyone in a place that I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. And it was I, it's a, a moment that I always remembered. I mean, it was something that happened so fast. I could not organize. I could not say bye to my friends. I could not say bye to my grandmother. I could not say bye to my most of my aunts or uncles or, or cousins. Uh, I left my dog. I mean, it was a very hard situation. Oh, dog. I know, right? <laughs> that always happened. Yeah. yeah, I remember with COVID, like remember when they announced that, oh, COVID doesn't affect kids. And now we know that COVID doesn't affect dogs. I'm like- <laughs> That's the best news. <laughs> oh, that makes my day. But really we should care about the humans. Uh, but- Yes, wow. yes. <laughs> I'm so, cause I know that like, the creepy crawly arms of the government in a socialist regime they are everywhere so how did you get from that like point a to point b over a course of a month didn't you hide out and in like a a portageon what was it <laughs> so so i i was in my house then i also had to sleep in in just one ounce house i could say bye to her not to the other ones uh, because yes, I just was, I was trying to hide. I was trying to keep myself uh, safe. It was a very hard situation. I was always receiving advices even from people that, that, I, that are living here. And I received help also from Americans. And that's what, why I'm always saying that I'm, I'm a witness about how Americans help others without the government tells you to do it. You just do it because you want to do it. And that's how actually it, it should work, you know? But yes, it was the hardest moment of my life for sure. I had to sleep in my own house. When I went to the airport, I was so scared. I was just thinking like, they are going to stop me in any moment because that's something very common in Venezuela that when people are trying to leave, they were political activists or that kind of stuff. They are just arrested there immediately and it was a very hard situation but once i arrived to to miami i mean i was i mean i felt safe after weeks so it was a really great experience i could feel like freedom and insecurity in a very huge way i i honestly can't believe that you weren't stopped at the airport that's fascinating because yes. you would assume that that would be the case, especially like when you scan your ID and when you try and uh, show your credentials and boom, they usually come and get you. But hey, you're here. You have a good uh, story about the hotel in Miami that you went to, the book that was there. Yes, Definitely yes, that's true. That. <laughs> so first I stayed in uh, Airbnb for a couple nights because I didn't know what I was exactly doing. I had to contact a lawyer for my immigration asylum case. I met some people, but in all the process to figure out what to do, where to live, etc., I I was staying at Airbnb. And just when I went there, uh, the first thing I saw was a book. And actually, it was one of the most fantastic and amazing books that is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. There is so difficult to find people who know and run in Venezuela. There is almost impossible to find a book of Ayn Rand in Venezuela. And in my first day in US, specifically in Miami, I saw a book of Ayn Rand and I said, well, I'm in the right place. So it's, it was a very interesting story because actually Ayn Rand is my biggest intellectual influence 
I also gave some speech about objectivism and the moral defense of capitalism based in Ayn Rand ideas in Venezuela. So it was an amazing experience what, what I had once I arrived in Miami and I went to the Airbnb and I saw that book. Wow. Oh, geez. So th that's like a sign, a sign. <laughs> yes. Yes. I yes. love that. That's such a beautiful story because I love Ayn Rand. We, again, we just take it for granted here in America of having a ton of books. Like I'm surrounded by books that have values around classical liberalism and capitalism and sometimes those just aren't allowed i've been seeing you know how amazon now is like banning the sale of certain books i heard somebody say that we all need to start getting our own copies of the classics and just archives on our own so that we don't have to rely on, on hoping to buy them once it gets really bad but speaking of just how everything's going in a country now you're in america Let's talk about what you do first, and then I kind of want to touch on uh, what's going on with all the issues today in this country. Uh, so what are you doing these days? So what I'm doing is I'm working with an organization called Bienvenido, that is a conservative organization focused um, the Hispanic community. We want to work in the Hispanic community since two of each three Hispanics are voting Democrats. But we think that actually most of Hispanics are conservative, and they they have some conservative values, so we have to focus on that. Some Hispanics just vote, vote for Democrats because they think that what they should do just based on their race or their skin color or where they are from, right? So I'm very focused on that. I'm still improving my English. I want to apply to college at the end of this year and, and start next year, hopefully. And I'm always, you know, having interviews and debates, especially in Hispanic television here in America during the election and the campaign. I had more than 30 presents on TV, including Univision and Telemundo that are the most known channels, Hispanic here in America, having debates with Democrats and discussing interesting and very important topics for the Hispanic community. And that's what I like to do. I think uh, my voice uh, has some value for some people and I'm always open to debate and to tell my story and explain why socialism doesn't work, why socialism is an immoral idea, and why we should focus to keep the, the values that founded America life. Yeah, well, you really hit the nail on the head there in terms of you and you using your voice for this. Because uh, I don't know if you knew this, but when I first started this, I was inspired by a study from Michigan State University. And it said that it's not a peer or it's not a parent or a professor that's best at communicating opposing viewpoints and difficult to understand issues. It's actually best heard from a peer if you're trying to reach a young mind. And so that's not just opposing viewpoints. It's more so issues that people need to fully understand and comprehend in terms of why it's important in general, why it's important for their life and why it's important for the people around them and the future in general. And so if you can think of one example where this is a good tactic to use, I would say it's the fight against socialism. It's better understanding what we're up against and you using that concept peer to peer communication, or I think the study called it peer rationale. That's, that's really effective. And to know that, that we are the most effective communicators in this is also super inspiring. So I hope you don't stop. Um, have you done anything with El American? Am I pronouncing? I am really bad with pronunciation. Oh, El American. Yeah. Uh, yes, actually. I have, yes, I have had some a participation on her YouTube on their YouTube channel and some other things. There is a there are a very good organization who are trying to you know promote this 
uh, freedom ideas and capitalism in social media, they are very effective on that. Well, they have really good articles and a really good YouTube channel with, where, where they have really good discussions. Yeah, and I know people are worried with, there's obviously the border crisis that's going on, and people are quick to assume that everybody coming over is going to be more liberal. But in general, traditionally, people down south are more traditionally conservative. And I don't mean like, oh, red-pilled or anything, but they're more family-oriented, they're more religious, they're more traditional, and they're more uh, community-focused instead of seeing big government as the solution. And my bigger concern is like finding out that Kamala Harris is giving everybody books. Did you see this? Uh, yeah. I just saw the headline yesterday that she's giving children's books. Every child that's in border custody right now gets a child's book written by Kamala Harris about heroes. And my concern is that they are building this growing narrative that conservatives and people on the right aren't welcoming of immigrants and that the left is truly, you know, the saviors of all the people that are coming. So uh, we need to find a way to combat that. But given everything going on in the country right now, I mean, we have Black Lives Matter, they're calling themselves trained Marxists, the founders of that organization. They have $90 million, Franklin, that they were given in 2020 yeah. these donations. So I was listening to an interview with the Black Lives Matter founder and she it talked about how they want to go from being known as a group that just rallies and riots in the streets whenever somebody is killed by police to then being instead known for the serious work, the legal work, the, the lobbying efforts that they're doing. So they want to take that $90 million, but they don't want to waste it. They want to build infrastructure and then be worthy of that money and spend it in important ways. And that's what I think we need to be aware of as people who don't believe in Marxism, who believe in the opposite of it. Uh, What's your analysis of what's happening right now? It's undeniable, the growth of the radical left. And I'm talking leftists, not liberals. I think there's a huge difference between uh, you know, a classic Democrat, a classic liberal, and a radical authoritarian leftist that actually wants the government to control the economy. Uh, can you give your synopsis on what America's dealing with right now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I well, <laughs> yes, I think America right now is, is a victim of very smart organizations that have been working for decades. Because even when Black Lives Matter is kind of like a new movement, they are using ideas and some people working there have been doing this for, for even more years. In Black Lives Matter, I said there are very smart people because just see the name of the organization, Black Lives Matter, who are going to reject that idea? I mean, of course, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, white people, you know, white lives matter as well. Everyone lives matter. So if you reject that movement, you're immediately a racist who hate black people and who don't want uh, black people to be alive. So they are very smart using that kind of speech. And that's why uh, during all the protests last year, I saw even some uh, conservatives or people who are not, you know, leftists supporting the Black Lives Movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, saying, yes, donate money to them. We need to fight against racism. We need to support this movement. And I was just like, wait, do you know that the founder is a, a Marxist confess? I mean, she supports Marxism and she wants to destroy it. what founded America. I mean, she said that openly she had pictures. She has pictures with Maduro, who is the dictator of Venezuela. But they are so smart that they use this name and those who are not very into politics, into know about all these topics, they just, okay, yes, Black Lives Matter, of course, they, they matter and they just support them. 
And Antifa is kind of the same. They are saying that they're, they're not an organization. It's just an ideology. So do you oppose uh, fascism? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, so you support the movement. No, I don't support the movement. I don't support I don't support looting a business. I don't support Bernie Sanders. I don't support radical socialism. So they are very smart. And right now, America is a victim of that. And most of the people who support them are also uh, young people. And they are also being supported by a lot of big companies who made me sad because the reason why big companies exist is because of free markets. But sometimes uh, big companies are, always, are sometimes more interested in gaining socialism because socialism means that they are going to destroy the small businesses who are a competition all, all the time. They are going to give some privilege. So it happens in the same in, in Venezuela. Some monopolies were crea created by the government. So those businesses, I mean, wanted socialism because they knew they were, they were going to have some privilege by the government. Uh, what big companies sometimes don't think about is that they're at the end, they're also going to be destroyed. So the biggest thing that we, we can do is that kind of things to talk and try to explain people what Black, Black Lives Matter really means, what Antifa really means, how can we face them is with ideas, is with, you know, working really hard and make people in young people understand why they are promoting bad ideas who can destroy their lives immediately. Yeah, well, and those two groups specifically are just at the strong point of the riots that we've been seeing. And I'm from upstate New York. I don't know if you knew that. Now I'm in Texas. But what really caught my eye is, of course, you know, you had the riots and everything last year after George Floyd. And so many people in America were just kind of assuming that the riots were just people who got a little too passionate when they were out peacefully protesting and things got a little crazy. When in reality, people like you and I are fully aware that these are well-funded, well-organized groups that are just waiting for moments of chaos to go riot in the streets with a justifiable reason. And I'm from upstate New York. And I would, so I was paying attention specifically to the local videos because there were videos all over the place of different situations happening at night of restauranters being attacked and stuff like that. And for us, there's downtown Saratoga Springs and Black Lives Matter people. This was kind of towards the end of the, you know, the riot season, if we want to call it that, where tensions were dying down for the George Floyd thing, but they really needed to find justifiable reasons for why they could keep getting aggressive in the streets. And so I saw a video of Black Lives Matter people screaming at restaurant uh, attendees and they're just eating outside and they're saying, say his name, Daryl Mount, say his name, Daryl Mount. And they're all doing their usual stuff. And I'm like, who the heck is Daryl Mount? So I look it up. I kid you not, Franklin, the guy died in 2013 and it was because he had had the police called on him for assaulting a woman. He ran away from the police. He ran onto construction scaffolding and he ran off of it and died. And his death was ruled an accident because he was being chased by the police and he fell off construction scaffolding after, again, assaulting a woman and having the police called on him. And so now they're using a 2013 accident as the reason for going and terrorizing people eating at a restaurant outdoors <laughs> in the yeah. summer. It's They're just searching for opportunities. And I think that's what we're going to see moving forward is the local chapters of Antifa and Black Lives Matter, they're either going to wait for moments to continue to happen in you know live action time in their community where they can freak out about it, 
or they're just going to go through the record books and find semi-justifiable reasons to complain and to riot, uh, but they have a ton of money and they are ready and willing and fighting. And so I don't think they're just going to focus on, you know, having more organized protests with all this money they have. I think it's going to be things like education reform. They're going to try and get their 1619 project pushed in and they're going to try and do a critical race theory in all, all the schools. It's going to be more of like a local school district by school district effort that we've seen a little bit so far. But Antifa, I'm really interested in this. You told me a little bit about this the last time we talked. The Chavistas are similar to Antifa. Am I right on that? Where the Chavistas used to be this like grassroots terrorizing group and then they became basically like paid police once the lefties got in power. I see that a lot with Antifa these days, the more violent and aggressive they get. It's almost like we're living in a police state, especially in places like Portland, but the police are the black block people. If you could Talk about that a little bit. Oh yes, of course. Well, I mean, what we are seeing is just is just horrible, and, and and it's the same strategy that the left applied in each country, and it was the same in Venezuela. Uh, the left before this, the left wing before taking the control of the power, they were also protesting and organizing some some movements for some good fights, and that's some good fights of course and that's what the left is doing right now here in america and when i see a black lives matter who are even so much more radical than joe Biden, i would say even kamala harris and what maybe I mean, we could see in in the next years is that uh, some democrat candidates are going to receive a lot of money from those movements in order to put them in control of power and they can apply the actions that actually Black Lives Matter. Actually, we have seen how Black Lives Matter is trying to cr criticize Biden, who of course I don't support at all either, but they are doing it because they are even more socialist, they are even more radical than, than Joe Biden. And he's the same with Antifa. And, and they are very smart groups. And that's why we have to be very concerned. The left is, is smart in what they have to do. We, I mean, in what they want to do. We, we don't have to take things for granted. And those movements are working very hard and are working daily to try to take the control and are not because they are wrong and they have, you know, a, a good a purpose or like a good goal. No, it's because they want control they want to uh, try to indoctrinate people. They want to play in the feeling of guilt. They want people to feel bad because of their skin color, because, I mean, how good your parents have been or not, and that kind of things. And actually, I have seen the same. That's why I'm very sad in some Hispanic community. During, my camp during the campaign that I was doing a lot of debates on TV and Hispanic TV, I received some racist message from Hispanics saying that I'm not a real Hispanic. And that's why oh. I was supporting Donald Trump. That as I don't look like some other Hispanics or the majority of Hispanics, I'm a fake Hispanic who is playing just with my white privilege, you know? That's what a lot of people on the left, I've seen them attack you guys for your skin color, even though you're, you're Venezuelan, you came from there. And they do the same thing with the Cubans as well. They say that it was justified. They say some really gross stuff. I don't know if you've seen it saying like, oh, they deserved it. They were just rich landowners. Like oh, yes, yes. In Cuba, they deserve to have their land taken. They stole it anyways. And they always bring up their race as if it's justified because you guys have lighter skin color. When if you did that against them, they would freak out. 
yes, they are obsessed with race. They are always talking about that and that's what they just matter. And I'm sad because of that, because some Hispanic that, of course, are not a majority, but some Hispanics who have come to US to make, make their dreams real and provide a better life for their next generations are now trying to take the decisions political decision that actually uh, destroyed their countries in, in first place, you know? But of course, they are a minority. But what I'm trying to say is that, that I mean, they're always talking about race, they're obsessed about race, and especially some white liberals, they always uh, want to make me feel that I'm not a, a real Hispanic or that I also have some kind of privilege and that's why I don't have the right to talk in the name of what the Hispanic wants, you know, or that kind of things. And that's that's very sad, but they are smart. They're smart because right now, while you and I are talking, some people don't want to speak out because they are just scared of what they are going to say about them. Or they think they don't have the right to say what they think just because they have that kind of privilege. That is a lie. As I told you, anyone who lives here have a privilege, you know, for all the, the beautiful and amazing things that, that we have here. I don't see any difference between you and me uh, in in I mean, if I work hard and you work hard, we both can make our dreams real, and that's what really matters. But they're always obsessed with race. They're obsessed with genders. They're obsessed with so many things because that's the way they can uh, build an authoritarian government. Yeah, I I completely agree. Now, given all of the stuff that we kind of just discussed, it looks like America is following the steps of every every other socialist or leftist country in the end. Uh, do you have one kind of closing message or suggestion or lesson for people? Because when I talk to people, when I do speeches, when I meet people out there traveling, they all just want to know what the heck they can do at this point. They're so concerned. Do you have a, a lesson or a suggestion for them? Yes, I mean, two things. First, always speak about facts and try to educate yourself. So that's the best way you can teach others or you can debate others. And, you, and so many people can learn from us every day. I know that in the place I have been working or the people I have met, I have taught a lot of people about how socialism really sucks and that they don't really want socialism and most of the times they don't know what socialism is so let's learn let's read let's know some facts so we can teach them and secondly morality we cannot we cannot fight against an idea if we think that idea has good intentions you know mm -hmm. i don't like when some conservatives say well you know socialists they have uh, good intentions it just doesn't work i know i mean Many some supporters who don't know what socialism really is could have some good intentions, but socialism as the idea, it doesn't have good intentions, not at all. They want to control the individual. So let's talk about the morality speech. Let's say that, you know, the government doesn't have the right to take our property. Let's say that we have the right as individuals to pursue our dreams and to care about ourselves and about our family. Uh, I have the right to, you know, to say that I want to be rich and I want to create wealth and I want to be productive. Uh, let's talk about that because if we accept the, the idea that socialism is moral but doesn't work, there is no way we can win this fight. We have to understand that socialism is evil and we need to talk the moral speech because most of individuals are always trying to pursue a moral code. 
even those who are not really good people, but they just have a wrong moral code. So let's talk about morality. Let's talk about what founded America and why America was and is a moral country. And that kind of things are going to help us a lot in debates and to try to convince people. That's, that's really good. And I always bring that up too, because I think I mentioned earlier, there's a huge difference between an actual Marxist socialist or communist, a, a leftist, if you will, and somebody on, you know, in our generation who thinks they want socialism, but would not actually support those concepts if they understood. So like when you look at 70% of young Americans say they would vote for a socialist, and then the same poll says five to 6% of them trust the government, the damage that the conservative movement is doing is grouping the very misled and well-intentioned young people in with the actual evil socialists because they are not good people. They have seen what socialism has done and they are still advocating for it. And I think it's like the flat earthers of economics, honestly. And so to group our generation who just wanna help people and are falling for the lies of the left with the actual radicals who have bad intentions, it's not good for us. Each group deserves a separate uh, approach to messaging. Yes. And I, I love that you're taking that on. The more people that can say that in a, an effective way to conservative leaders and people who lead in determining the messaging, the better. So please never give that up. <laughs> please, Franklin, never give it up. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming on to this. I really appreciate it. And, you know, like I said, we used to do these testimony videos on a five to seven minute basis, and they did super well, but people had, this has been the number one most requested thing, a podcast where we have one hour discussions with people. So uh, I'm just really thankful that you wanted to be on. Thank you. Uh, let us know if you ever need anything, and I hope you have a great week. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a great day.